Hello, I'm Shahida Bari, and I'm one of the fellows of the Forum for Philosophy at the LSE. Welcome to this event, which is one in our ongoing series of Philosophers Book Club events. And this has become a regular part of the Forum's programming. For the book club, the idea is that we select a work of fiction or non-fiction and we invite you to read the work and then come to discuss it with us. We try to put together a panel of critics and philosophers, sometimes the writers themselves, to help us steer the discussion. If you've missed any of the previous book club events, you might like to look up the back catalogue of podcasts on our website. That's blogs.lse.ac.uk forward slash the forum. There you'll find discussions with Deborah Levy on her me memoir, The Cost of Living, and a book club dedicated to Flann O'Brien's The Third Policeman. Our event today, of course, centres on Iris Murdoch's novel of 1954, Under the Net. Hopefully some of you will have read it, but if not, perhaps you may be persuaded to do so after this discussion. I should say that we will not be issuing any spoiler alerts, because it's not gone, girl. There are no huge dramatic plot twists that knowing in advance would spoil your reading. And also it was published in 1954, so it's a bit late for spoiler alerts 70 years on. Our expert panellists, though, will be steering us through the book for about 45 minutes and then we'll hand over to you for questions. So do just type your questions in the chat box as we go along and we'll do our best to get to them. So let me introduce you to our panel. Dr. Hannah Maria Oltoff is a philosopher. Her research focuses on the philosophical work of Iris Murdoch and the notion of imagination. She has a book on Murdoch called Iris Murdoch and the Art of Imagining, published by Continuum in 2008. And she's written numerous articles on Murdoch too. Together with Mariette Williamson, she created Murdoch's The Sovereignty of Good into Dutch. Dr. Lucy Bolton is reader in film studies at Queen Mary University of London. Her research focuses on film and philosophy with particular interests in feminist philosophy and phenomenology. And her most recent monograph, helpfully for us, is Contemporary Cinema and the Philosophy of Iris Murdoch, published by Edinburgh University Press. And Dr. Mara Kojakaru is lecturer in practical philosophy at Munich School of Philosophy. She's particularly interested in thinking about animals, also relevant to this book this week. Both she and Hannah are members of the In Parenthesis Women in Philosophy Network, and Mara is also an esteemed poet, publishing two volumes of poetry in German. Welcome, Hannah, Lucy, and Mara. Hello. Hello. It's lovely for you to join us. I'm really excited to get your expert guidance in reading this book. It's such a beloved book too. I've, I've asked each of you to select a passage from the book in advance, introduce it and read it, and we'll use that as a springboard to open up our discussion. But let's set up the book a little bit. I'd like to know, first of all, when did you first read it and what were your first impressions of it? Um, Lucy, why don't you go first? Um, it wasn't my first Murdoch book, actually, I have to say. I think it was my third. I started with ones that my mum recommended, because she's a huge Iris Murdoch <laughs> fan. She said, oh, you must read The Bell, then you must read See the Sea. Uh, and then I thought I'd start at the beginning and went back to Under the Net. And I think it probably has um, become one of my favourites, definitely in my top mm. three. Um, and that would have been in my teens, uh, probably, probably pre-university, probably sixth form. Yeah. I'm intrigued that your mum like, likes Murdoch. I think women of a certain generation, she really speaks to as a kind of yeah, I don't know that she really, um, yeah, she's, she'd, she read, she's read them all and she's always been a huge fan of Iris as a, a woman and a philosopher and a writer and a thinker as well. So, yeah, I kind of imbibed it, I guess. 
Yeah, that's interesting, the generational consumption of Murdoch. Hannah, what about you? When did you first read it and what did you think? Um, so I um, found, actually I have two copies of the book, I found <laughs> that last week. And when I opened the second copy, I found a train ticket from Nijmegen to Maastricht, dated the 2nd of April, 1999. Wow. So I think, <laughs> yeah. Quite an accurate way of, of dating <laughs> my first reading of it. I have a sort of strange introduction to Murdoch in the sense that I noticed her work, her literary work, in the library for a very long time and would always pass it and think I should read one of those. But I first read Metaphysics as a Guide to Morals. So her philosophy was my first introduction. And then I turned to the novels. It's also not the first novel I read. And it's, it's, it's not my favorite still, but it's grown on me. I like it better every time I read it. So I think give it another five readings. And I think it's <laughs> that bodes well, another 20 years of reading. Brilliant. And Mara, when did you first read it? Yes, yeah, so I believe I'm the newcomer to this then, because I think I read her first when uh, in 2018, late in 2018, Hannah and another colleague of ours, Anna Barandella, they were running this um, London reading group for the wartime quartet uh, lecture series at the Royal Institute of Philosophy. And I, I was getting all books that I could find of these four women's onto my hands. And then um, I started reading all sorts of things at the same time. And I have to say that at first I didn't quite have the patience for it, or maybe I was a tad too serious at the time for reading it. And I was, I had the sense that I found it a little bit unnerving or maybe I was occupied with other more pressing issues. I mean, we'll talk about the, um, the, the comic in it. And um, later, on I, I had more patience with it and I have to say that also with the audio version read by and I noted the name Samuel West especially as a non-native speaker mm. that opened so much for me in terms of accent that's really lovely and so um, I found myself and I was sometimes listen, listening to it when out on the walks with my dogs and I found myself laughing out in, in public <laughs> like on Hampstead standing there and, yeah. and laughing and so yeah so ultimately I got to got to enjoy it. Lucy's a fan of the Sam West reading as well, aren't you? He has become Jake Donoghue in my head now. When I read it again, read the book again for today, I just picture him all the way through it now. He's just per perfect. He is. Yeah. yeah, I think he absolutely is. Yeah. Um, that, that's really funny and interesting. Now everybody's going to download the audio book. Um, let, let's start at the beginning. H Hannah, perhaps you could help. For, for those of us who haven't read the book yet, or those of us who, like me, who read it a long time ago and are coming back to it, can you give us a quick dash through the story? Because it begins with our protagonist, Jake, or Sam West, um, a mooching writer and hack being made homeless. Yeah, exactly. So the main character is Jane Donoghue. He is an aspiring writer. He's also the narrator of the story. So we hear it from the, his perspective, which is, I suppose, why he comes associated with Samuel West, vice versa. <laughs> uh, so he's living as a translator of a French um, writer, Jean-Pierre uh, Breteuil. But he basically lives off other people. So it starts indeed with him being thrown out of a house he shared with Madge and where he lived rent-free with his companion, Finn. And the, this, the relationship between Jake and Finn is of a very peculiar nature. and We might come to talk to that. So money is of some concern to Jake, but not much. There are always, throughout the novel, people providing him with accommodation and money. And, money. and, and people seem to leave their houses open quite, quite freely 
given that they live in the centre of London, and um, not so much care about that. The plot is driven by a quest over a few days uh, of Jake trying to find Hugo Belfander. I think that's the main quest. There's some other quests as well, but that's the main quest. And Hugo Belfander he met, we learn in one of the earlier chapters, in a medical center where they're both taking uh, flu, um, were, were subjected to flu trials and were given the flu. And then they were sharing a room and at one point they started talking. And Jake is very impressed with Hugo. He describes him as a theoretician, I think, but without a master theory, he talks about him as being very objective and detached. And then Jake starts writing the, um, the, the dialogues down, first as an aide memoir, but later he embellishes them and he keeps thinking about him. But he says, well, he's not never going to publish them. So he sort of entertains in his mind whether he should publish it, what would happen, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that's actually a really interesting motive that becomes very important later in Murdoch's Philosopher. And in the end, he, he shows it to someone, a friend of his, Dave, who is a philosopher, and publication then comes nearer and it is actually published as a book, The Silencer. And then on the day that it's published, he's bound to meet Hugo, but he doesn't go to their appointed place of meeting on the bridge, instead, he sits somewhere away from the bridge and watches Hugo as he waits for Jake, then he knows he's going to his house and they then never meet. And there's some time disappears. And when we come back to it, to the, or when we start the book, um, Jake has just sort of returned from Paris and he speaks to uh, Sadie, a friend of them, and then he starts to find Hugo. And so the quest is really find Hugo. There are sort of subplots in doing that. He doesn't find him until very late in the chapter, and then there's a sort of denouement in the book, but then there's sort of a denouement. But in the meantime, there are all sorts of plot twists and comical um, uh, interventions, some related to the character, other characters. So there's Finn, uh, who is his Irish sidekick. Um, there's Mrs. Trinken, who's a lady in a corner shop, who's also a holding place for some of his luggage. It's also interesting, he keeps depositing some of his luggage in different <laughs> houses. There's Dave, the philosopher, uh, very much a man of criticism and analysis. There's Lefty, a political activist, and there's Match and Sadie, the main, uh, so two, two women, two sisters, who sort of keep going in plot as well. They're actually part of another subplot where Jake thinks that Hugo loves Anna and Jake loves, and et cetera, et cetera. And it turns out in the end that Anna loves Hugo and Hugo loves Sadie and Sadie loves Jake <laughs> and Jake loves Anna. And there's some sort of really Shakespearean kind of love drama there. But he calls it a love diamond, doesn't he? Rather than a love triangle. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think there is another character, which is uh, Mr. Mars, which who is an Alsatian, a dog. And I know Mara <laughs> will talk about him, who gets kidnapped at a certain point. And so you get all these sort of um, developments where they try to visit the film studio that Hugo has at a certain point and it's completely destroyed. Mr. Mars is kidnapped. So all these sorts of events, which I'm sure we'll talk about uh, throughout the, uh, the, the, um, the discussion. I want to add one thing which, I, which really struck me this time and didn't strike me before that I think London is a really important character mm. there. I think it didn't strike me before because, well, as the train ticket in 1999 showed, I was between Nijmegen and Maastricht. I wasn't even in London. And so I think my second reading was in Glasgow. It's not that until <laughs> this reading I'm reading <laughs> in London. 
and not being able to visit the center actually, but mm. it seemed struck me how many chapters start with I was in this place in London, I was in that place in London, I moved there, I took this bus, I took that bus. And I think Meredith had a lot of fun by relating the different places in London to different yes. positions and different ideas. Uh, but there's also a sort of tour of Paris, but I think the tour of London is much yeah. more extensive. It's yeah. funny you say that because I, I concur entirely when I, I read it again in preparation for this. I, I, I'm 20 years older now and I know that, that I know that London, but I also know these characters. I know the lefty friend. I know the slightly drunken sidekick. I know the philosophers. I know the, the wild actress girlfriends. I know this cast. I know the shopkeeper. Um, and so it, it struck me in a, that there's a really great deafness in her character study of the kinds of people that populate a city. I wonder what the rest of you think about that, what you, Lucy and Mara, think about this idea of it being a London novel. For me, I mean, that's absolutely at the heart of the appeal for me. I am a Londoner, I used to work on Fleet Street. Um, I've never known anybody be able to conjure the kind of randomly occurring um, drunken bender <laughs> like Iris <laughs> does. You know, all of a sudden they just head off and before you know it, he doesn't really want to be drinking, but before you know it, he's having his first pint, then another one, then he's onto the whiskers, then they're buying bottles of brandy, then he ends up swimming in the Thames and forging life, declaring lifelong political allegiances that are just all completely forgotten the next morning. And so many things that Jake does are done either with a hangover or without much memory of the night before. And also the, the tours through London, whether it's like at night when um, Murdoch traces the churches through Paris, she mm. traces the pubs through London. <laughs> They're almost, they could go east or west, they could go to the King Lud or they could head down Fleet Street. Yeah. And that is just so evocative to me. Yeah. I think it's, it's brilliant. I mean, that's what I really love about it. Did you want to add to that, Yeah, Mara, I just wanted to, to say precisely what someone in the chat has just posted, that she has that line about some parts of London being necessary and others contingent, which I found very, very fitting. And I believe everyone has different mm. parts of London in these categories, of course. And, I mean, at the same time, um, I agree with you that it, it's sort of timeless. So it seems as if, and even the debates about Europe, Yes. Uh, so Dave has a, this thing that he wants to talk about Europe and then this is oh maybe Europe's not going to be there forever and you read that today and you feel like oh right okay. <laughs> um, it also struck me that the way in which he inhabits this city as uh, a much more homely place as it might be today for us might be not so timeless. So for instance this um, thing about Miss, uh, Miss Tinkham with the shop and this um, being able, and, and people seem to have so much time on their hands. Like they mm. could always, you know, just run off on some drinking spree and have that ad um, <laughs> adventure and whatnot. So um, maybe maybe that was more her experience or we're just a little busier today in London. Mm. I think yeah. London is a little busier as well. I mean, those scenes where they're standing on, on Hoban Viaduct and looking and there's complete si completely deathly silence either side of them. I, mean, I don't think you get that at any hour of the night. Yeah, um, yeah. I was thinking how it's um, it, it, the novel is about um, a certain kind of transience, the, the people who move through a city, but London feels even more transient, or the, the inhabitants of London feel even more transient, that we move through it quicker and quicker and we don't have time to forge the kinds of relationships that, that Jake does. Um, yeah. somebody, so, Mari, you were going to say something. I'm just going to add this this very old-fashioned institution of a telephone book. <laughs> yeah. We're just asking people on the odd chance that they would know where someone else is. I mean, these days we have yeah. WhatsApp or 
or, or Telegram or whatever you want to use. And um, yeah, so it, it, it came a bit as a relief from our age, maybe reading this today. Yeah, yeah. Mara, can we talk about the tone of the book? I think we're really getting at it. And we, we've talked about the kind of light comedy, but also the f philosophical stakes in it. Tell me about the tone of this book. As I said, I found myself laughing out loud quite often. And that has something to do with something very British, I suppose, a sort of self-deprecation, understatement, but it becomes so humorous in Jake because he's not, not at all like that. He's very self-concerned and he takes himself very, very serious, but in the wrong way, speaking from Murdoch's perspective as a philosopher. So he's egotistic on end. And, um, and the way in which she allows him to run into his own paradoxes almost is very amusing um but at the same time i do think that there's great seriousness in some characters and i would say these are in particular hugo and anna and i was wondering how much of um how much of the more serious philosophical thoughts murdoch had placed um within these two characters in particular maybe we could talk a bit yeah um, that as well the one worry I had, I mean, this this novel is just very um, funny and witty and um, it, it goes at a very high speed. And sometimes I had the impression that maybe she's, I mean, I suppose that was her first novel and coming out of academia, being already rather successful at that. Some people always say, well, Murdoch became successful as a philosopher later on in odd ways, but that's not true because if you look at her published writing, she's got very good publications early on. And then she just finds it in her talents to write a novel <laughs> and, and become, become successful at that. And the one thing I worry about the philosophical content of the novel is that it gets lost in the speed and the comedy. Mm. Of course, you can always go back and read it again. But then uh, that, that was my impression that maybe she's, she's on some of the issues too lighthearted. Um, but I mean, as I said, the, it's, it's a beautiful character study. There's a lot of British humor, and I suppose I'm not even getting all of it. But um, yeah, I, um, that's, that's the tone that I appreciate. Yeah. I agree. When I read it again, I thought that there were moments where she's so caught up in this world and these characters and their japes, their, their escapades, that when they pause to have what feels almost like quite a self-consciously philosophical reflective moment on how they're expressing themselves, whether they're being understood, what people intend, those moments pass very quickly because then she must pick up the plot again. Go Lucy. That's not necessarily the philosophical content of the novel though, I think. The, the, as with many of Murdoch's writings, there were the overt mentions like um, the gentle refutation of Barclay, which is to consider <laughs> fountain and things like this, because there's, I love that line where she talks about the fount fountains are brilliant because they can be heard even when there's nobody there. So there, there's kind of little philosophical points, little, um, not jokes exactly, but little kind of knowing references. And of course, Murdoch always said, well, she writes about philosophy because philosophy is what she knows. So she, I think she says something like, if, if I knew about sailing boats, I'd write about sailing boats. So the milieu of her novels is often either a philosophical world or contains mm -hmm. philosophers and their language and their jokes and their, and their frames of reference they are philosophically informed but I think what I love about um, Under the Net and uh, to be honest I actually the more I talk about Jake I actually find it quite hard not to laugh because <laughs> he's so 
preposterous mm -hmm. of the way in which he suddenly decides the way to deal with the situation is to do a judo throw. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that weird? Yes. Judo. Or he suddenly decides that for some reason he can't go and visit Hugo in hospital during the day. So he's got to break in overnight, thereby losing his job and ruining it. the way in which he just goes off for the, without thinking for the worst possible idea creates a whole environment across the whole novel uh, the whole novel of him kind of blundering from one um uh, thing to another insert making wrong decisions about people making because he completely lacks any kind of um ability to pause reflect and really look which is what Murdoch's yeah. asked yeah. us to do. So I think, in a way, the whole novel illustrates quite brilliantly the, the Jake's move, not completed move, but beginning to move from self-obsessed blindness to anyone else having any kind of universe, to beginning to see that other people are not him. I agree, but can I can I ask you a question? Because um, you're obviously much more knowledgeable about that than me. But for instance, in um, in his um, conversation with Anna or with Hugo or even with Dave, there are often these um, little ideas that I found resonate with Murdoch's philosophical project: the um, let's say uselessness of abstraction, the longing to get away from language in one way or another, the seeing element in all of that and that's sort of teased and then everyone is rushed on to the next scene and I agree that it's replicated mm -hmm. at the level of the whole plot because that's the development that we see in Jake that ultimately he'll become slowly but surely and painfully for him someone who pauses to see um, but yet um, Maybe I was just so taken by the laughter that no, sometimes... I'm, I'm with you, actually, Mara. I'm, I'm with you. I, I think this, is, she goes, she doesn't ever, I think this is for more novels, but I think this novel in particular, she, she moves on for the laugh quite quickly. And I think that's, that's characteristic of this. And I, I was thinking about, I know we, we're not talking about other novels until yet, but I'll say one thing. <laughs> you can, of course you can. There, I think in this novel, people are less uh, connected by necessity. So I think in later novels, you get all these characters who are much more bound by the, by the situation they're in and sort of struck by that and, and, and struck down by that, right? So if you think about even the flight from the Enchanter, there's a refugee who in the end doesn't see any way out and commit suicide and it gets people you get more this idea of characters being bound by who they are and then being able to get out of them yes or no and i think here there's more of a light tone and there's less of that being bound by circumstances and mm -hmm. i think the sort of way in which money floats to jake in this case <laughs> right? and and to be honest i think of this as london quite quite the old times because perhaps i i am too obsessed as a londoner but i think house prices and all that sort of thing but i think you know he's funny <laughs> just floats he just walks around it's all yeah. it's all quite light-hearted in that sense mm. but i think even in later novels Mur murdoch sometimes seems to shy away from the real evil in order to make a joke. I think yeah. she really likes making jokes. Yeah, we, we, should, we should talk about that a bit more, I think, uh, in a moment. But I want to get uh, a little bit of the novel into our book group. So Lucy, I'm gonna come to you. Um, each of you have been asked to select a passage and you've selected a passage um, that might help us to think about the relationship between Jake and Hugo. Do you want to do you want to introduce it and read it or do you want to talk about yeah, it? Yeah. The, okay. the reason why I chose this passage is because I think it goes right to the heart of what, 
what we're talking about in that um so hugo and jake have met in this center for cold cure which makes it even more <laughs> present for now as well i could see it clearly needs to be um this is the time to be looking at this book um, and hugh uh, jake is very impressed by hugo as hannah said but what impressed him is that he's he's a he um is that he's a truth teller. He's searching for the truth, particular truths about how to um, understand the, uh, reality exactly as it is, rather than using any kind of totalizing theory or any kind of grand claim about life. So yes, he likes theories, but there is no one big totalizing theory. And that's what um, strikes Jake about it. And so he, yes, he writes up his conversations with Hugo and embellishes them. And the reason why I like this passage is because it, it goes, it, it, it expresses right away how Jake has no idea what Hugo might think of it, or in fact, um, what, what he's at, the amount of work that he's actually doing to it. So he's beginning to show his, his manuscript to people. Um, he says, since I knew how much the whole project would displease him, meaning Hugo, I had felt myself bound to conceal Hugo's identity. I presented the thing to Dave as a dramatic exercise, rather remotely based on conversations which I had had with a variety of people. But now, in a little while, I found myself being regarded in certain circles as a kind of sage, and many of my friends pressed me to let them see the manuscript. Eventually, I did show it to a few more people and began to get used to the idea that it should circulate a little. All this time, I was still working on it and drawing additional matter from my current conversations with Hugo. I had continued to keep my friendship with Hugo completely secret from all my other friends. I did this at first out of a jealous desire to keep my remarkable find to myself. And later on, also because I feared that Hugo might discover my treachery. People were now constantly suggesting to me that I should publish the thing, at which I just laughed. But the notion was attractive to me all the same. It was attractive at first in the way something can attract one when one knows when one knows one will never do it. As publication was so absolutely out of the question, I felt it was quite safe to broach upon it in imagination. I thought what a remarkable book it would make, how original, how astonishing, how illuminating. I amused myself inventing titles for it. I would sit holding the manuscript in my hands and then I would fancy it reproduced a thousandfold. I suffered continually at that time from a fear of losing the manuscript. And although I tacked out two or three copies, I still felt it very likely that somehow or other they would all be destroyed and the thing lost forever, which I couldn't help thinking would be a pity. Then one day a publisher approached me directly with a proposal for its publication. This took me by surprise. I had never been spontaneously approached by a pub publisher before and such condescension rather turned my head it occurred to me that if this book were a success, which I couldn't doubt, this might smooth my way considerably in the literary world. It's easier to sell junk when you're known than works of genius when you're unknown. If I could leap to fame in this way, my career as a writer would be made. I set this idea aside, telling myself that the project was an impossible one. I couldn't palm off Hugo's ideas as my own. Most of all, I couldn't use material drawn from my intimacy with Hugo to present the public with a work which would fill Hugo himself with repulsion and disgust. But the idle dreams of publication, which I had nourished earlier, now amassed themselves as a real will. I became obsessed with the notion that I would publish. A sort of fatality drew me towards it. I saw all my past acts as leading inevitably to this end. I remember a drunken evening during which I passed in fantasy through every stage of the process, which should bring the dialogue into print. 
By then, the idea had too great a reality in imagination for it to be long before it should become actual. I rang up the publisher at his home. He knew of my reluctances and arrived early the next morning with the contract, which I signed with a flourish of abandon and a splitting headache. After he had gone, I took up the manuscript and looked at it as one looks at the woman for whom one has lost one's honour. I entitled it The Silencer and added an author's preface to the effect that I owed many of the ideas contained therein to a friend who should be nameless, but that I had no reason to believe that he would approve of the form in which I was presenting them. Then I sent the thing away and left it to its fate. Thank you so much, Lucy. I want to carry on reading now. <laughs> I, I, I was going to, I was going to ask about Jake and Hugo. Well, let me ask you, as, as you were reading, I was thinking when a writer writes about another writer or write, imagines another write, writer writing that reflexivity, it's almost invariable, isn't it, that they're also talking about their own practice. Is that right here? What, you mean that Jake is talking about his own... Yeah. Or Murdoch is writing, or maybe. Murdoch is, yeah. Right. Um, I don't know. What do you think? Well, I mean, just as I was reading it then for the first time, I thought of um, the way in which her husband, John Bailey, in her last yes. years would write about her and about their intimate lives whilst she was still alive and actually sitting in another room. Yeah. Um, and so in a way, that kind of presages that quite... Um, yeah, really. yeah. But what... I think is so fascinating about this is that Hugo has revealed in the conversations with Jake that he's not actually that interested, he's not interested in language. He thinks language is inadequate to describe the reality of things. Um, and so co consequently, you know, Jake calls this book the, the silencer in a way because Hugo is silencing language. But what does Hugo turn to do? He, he goes and becomes a filmmaker, which is why, where I love the book. He, rather than writing himself, he goes and becomes um, a maker of films in an attempt to get to the reality of things. So this is why I see it really pivotal. Mara's waving. Yeah, oh, Mara, come on in. Yeah, I'm just curious because later on when, uh, when Jake and Hugo get to meet again and Jake confesses how he was written by all these doubts about the quality of his work and what he had done to Hugo's thoughts in the novel and whatnot, um, Hugo then says, you've made something wonderful, much better than I ever had in mind out of it, right? And so it seems to me that Hugo is actually not so preoccupied by all the important theorizing that he's putting out there. He's just putting it out there and Jake takes it incredibly seriously and goes into that frenzy, destroys a friendship for that, which is really a horrible he thinks he has destroyed a friendship. He hasn't actually. Well, he, he he well he has in a way because I mean they don't meet for I don't know for how many years and and the situation when he um, when he keeps Hugo waiting on the on the bridge and when he knows where he's going, his friend is seeking him out and he's just sort of incapable of making this very normal mm. and human move. That's so disappointing in a way and then later on Hugo says I forgive you or not even I forgive you it's just it's, it's a bit sad that we didn't get to share more time and by the way your book is great it's much greater than what I had in mind. I can't believe it he also knows that Hugo is a very humble person yeah so his perception of Hugo as taking great offense to this is completely wrong-headed yes Hugo's not like that at all yeah. Go on, Hannah, I was going to draw you in. Here you yeah, are. This, this shows, I mean, that the book is about Jake and it's not about Hugo, right? Yeah. And I think what, what interests me in the passage you read, I, I was forgotten, it's in this passage where, where he sort of, he's entertaining the thought because he thinks it's an innocent thought to have. And so a year before this, Murdoch 
publishes Sartre Romantic Rationalist, in which he says of Sartre, uh, even he thinks that when the die, when, the, when we make a decision, the die is already cast. Yeah. And so you see that here as a motive, like our, our imaginations, our, our musings, they're not innocent. And it becomes a big thing later in the sovereignty of good. But I think here she shows it, as, as the philosophy comes in, this shows it quite nicely, uh, this idea that, you know, you can think things through, but then suddenly you're already there at the decision. Prepared. The, the ground is already laid. Yeah. Do you think the fact that he's a translator of somebody else's work um, is part of that um, laying the groundwork for him to be happy to, he's got a sort of rather sort of parasitic quality about yeah. him, as well. he's always living off other people, yeah. um, whether it's Madge mm. or, and using Finn's goodwill, using trying to use Dave, trying to use Anna. Um, do you think that he's doing that with Hugo's work as well? That's consistent with his kind of not actually getting on and writing himself or committing himself or making a go of his life himself? I'm not sure translation is parasitic, actually. Walter <laughs> <laughs> Benjamin would protest. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure if it's even in this novel, parasitic. <laughs> but there is something about, I think it's more about um, how he can't have others in his life, right? So this relationship, he's living partly on the translation, but he's also very envious. Mm. And again, not seeing, not seeing what, the, what, the, what the author is doing, because when he goes to Paris, he's suddenly surprised that this man gets the great... French prize. Han Sorry, Hannah, I want to pick up on, you mentioned um, Sartre a moment ago. Um, when I was looking up the dates for this book, this is written in 1954, and um, uh, Nausea, I think, is 1938, 36. and, oh, 36, and uh, Camus is writing L'Etranger in 1942. So, I mean, there is, I mean, one of the questions that's on my mind is, is the, is the philosophical novel a genre here and is she writing a philosophical novel in that order or is she doing something different is she writing a novel that happens to be philosophical or is it philosophy disguised as a novel tell me about the philosophical mode of this book we mentioned reception earlier and in fact this novel was received was perceived when it came out as one of the kind of angry young men novels right. <laughs> um so i think perhaps a lot of what she was trying to do wasn't it wasn't perceived as a, a radically philosophical novel. Yeah. Which... Hannah, what do you think? Because I know you've got I... a reading lined up for us well. Yeah, I'm not too sure whether this is a philosophical novel, but it, it depends very much what you think a philosophical novel is, <laughs> I assume. So it is a philosophical novel in the sense that, I mean, there are various references to philosophy. I think Murdoch is a bit disingenuous in the interview um, with McGee when she says, oh, it just happens to come into my novel. I think she is playing a bit for the for the for the audience there. Sartre comes into it a couple of times. Like there are absolutely clear references to Sartre, like somebody help, having their hand lay without it sort of yes. being attached to them, and the song at the end. Again, I'm not so sure how important we think them. I think sometimes she's just joking um, and making that reference, but certainly not understanding it exactly the same. I think for the song in the end, there's something very interesting to say. Not my passage. I'll read you my <laughs> passage, which is, comes from, if one has a, a book with them, comes from chapter two, quite this, the third paragraph. I don't want to give page numbers because there's so many different editions. I really like this paragraph because it sort of shows Murdoch deeply steeped in, um, in philosophical academic circles. It also shows her humor, and it shows a bit of what she thinks philosophy can and cannot do. 
So this is how it starts. Dave, so this is Dave, the philosopher, does extra mural work for the university and collects about him many youth who have a part-time interest in truth. Dave's pupils adore him, but there is a permanent fight on between him and them. They aspire like sunflowers. They are all natural metaphysicians, or so Dave says in a tone of disgust. This seems to be me to be a wonderful thing to be, but inspires in Dave a passion of opposition. To Dave's pupils, the world is a mystery, a mystery to which it should be reasonably possible to discover a key. The key would be something of the sort that could be contained in a book of some 800 pages. To find the key would not necessarily be a simple matter, but Dave's pupils feel sure that the dedication of between four and 10 hours a week excluding university vacations, should suffice to find it. They do not conceive that the matter should be either more simple or more complex than that. They are prepared with certain limits to alter their views. Many of them arrive as theosophists and depart as critical realists or Bradleyans. It's remarkable how Dave's criticism seems so often to be purely catalytic in, this, in his action. He blazes upon them with the destructive fury of the sun, but instead of shriveling up their metaphysical pretensions, achieves merely their metamorphosis from one rich stage into another. This curious, curious facts makes me think that perhaps after all Dave is, in spite of himself, a good teacher. Occasionally he succeeds in converting some peculiarly receptive youth to his own brand of linguistic analysis after which as often as not, the youth loses interest in philosophy altogether. To watch Dave at work on this young man is like watching someone prune a rose bush. It is all the strongest and most luxuriant shoots which have to come up. And later perhaps there will be blossoms, but not philosophical ones Dave trusts. His great aim is to dissuade the young from philosophy. He always warns me of it with particular earnestness. Thank you. I love that because we're teachers, of course. And why did you choose it? I like it because I think it shows Murdoch's great comical tone. I think that's very funny. I also think it shows her sort of reserve for certain ways of doing philosophy. So after that, you get these very comical situations in which people, people, people pass um, the tea, but also say, but is this, is ought and ought and is this, is and, and that sort of conversations, which again is quite funny. And so I think it very characterizes Murdoch's, um, Murdoch's fun when she writes. Uh, it also shows a bit her, her reluctance to engage in philosophy, I think. So the writing at this time, she often poses herself as a non-philosopher. It's rather interesting. She often says, well, what, we, what do we do? Philosophers say this, but what do we do when we, when we speak as normal people? Or she brings in, uh, you know, later on she brings in virtuous peasants, a problematic concept, but again, right, you see this sort of opposition to philosophy. And I like that. And so it's, and of course, it also shows, I think, her own experience of not having been taught by Wittgenstein. I think she has two lessons, and he said, having two lessons, philosophy is like two piano lessons, no use whatsoever. But to have lived with um, Wittgenstein's pupils. Mm. 
and and I think this is really inspired by that. So it's a character sh- sketch, I think. I think yeah. of that period, but it also shows a bit what she thinks about philosophy. Yeah, and then her own interest. I think cl- truth is an important interest in this novel all the way through, and clarity and muddle. I think those are really important concepts. So she's really worried when things get too clear. And I love this when she says they should find a solution in 10 weeks of term for <laughs> to age. You know, that sort yeah. of thing. I think she's very funny, but she's very suspicious of too much clarity. Yeah. Yeah. And that shows in this passage as well. And later on in the novel, there is, and then, I'll, and then the others can respond. There's a wonderful passage in, um, uh, in Fairly Honorable Defeat, where she says of the main uh, her- character, um, somebody says of him, of the main good character, um, you know, when he, when Talis is there, there's always a muddle and then they turn it around and say it's not fair. When there's a muddle, Talis is there. So to have clarity is for her almost morally dubious. Yeah, yeah. Mara, you were nodding along to that. Did you want to say something? No, I'm just curious about the, um, the model she might have had in mind for Dave, because I think some people would say, well, it's, it's Wittgenstein in one way or another, but I don't think that she really intends to point into his direction because she makes Dave uh, a German-Jewish immigrant, right? I mean, of course, Wittgenstein has his own um, history and packet, luggage, if you, if you like, but it seemed to me that from that perspective, you, you might, um, I don't know, get another sense of the gravitas that is behind Dave's and the reluctance with which some of the people who were doing this very abstract moral theorizing at the time approached the project of moral philosophy. And we know the debates between um, these women like Murdoch and her friends and the philosophy of their time and how they found it sort of um, morally problematic to do that kind of theory that they were doing. But then sometimes you could also see that someone who might have spent some time in a um, in a prisoner of war camp or whatnot really tries to work hard at the rationality of it all in order to you know make some sense of the world after all. So I was wondering, Hannah, you you, you surely know whom she had in mind with uh, when she came up with Dave and 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 how much um, or maybe yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to put you put you on the spot there, but. Um, I'm also a bit reluctant to uh, attribute too, too clearly between this is reality and this is the person that she has in mind because I think she has an enormous creative person. I think there is some of Wittgenstein in this, right? In the sense that the dissuasion from, from philosophy, which I think relates back to Wittgenstein, there are other elements of this complete analysis and questioning. I mean, Hugo has some characteristics of Wittgenstein as well, but I think Dave as well. I think it's interesting to talk about his Jewish background. He might also be a model for one of her other uh, teachers that she had in Oxford. And of course, it makes a difference whether they came before the war or after the Mm. war. But I think most of her refugee characters, if they're Jewish, come before the war. I was going to ask whether the novel has been engaged with as a philosophical text by other philosophers. Not so much. Mm. Well, see, this is the interesting part. So, so I wrote my PhD 16 years ago. And then every, so I did not do it in a philosophy department. I was mm. in an interdisciplinary institute. And then my, my supervisor, who was not a philosopher, either one of them, thought it was funny to ask visiting philosophers what they thought of my project. And most of them said, it's crap. Murdoch's not a philosopher, mm. right? And he thought that was funny. And I thought that was funny. Um, and now suddenly she's all interesting, but I think philosophers are catching up. Yeah. What, what accounts for that, Lucy? 
or um, accounts for the catching up. Yeah, I feel like there has been, I mean, not least because of the anniversary last year, but... I think it's been staged, actually, as in in stages. I think there was a flurry of um, interest around the time of her death and around the time of the release of the memoirs by her husband, John Bailey, and the film by Richard Eyre, um, featuring Judy Dench and Kate Winslet as the younger and older um, Murdoch Oscar-nominated, um, very highly regarded film. But it, it was a film about, it wasn't a film about Iris Murdoch, the writer, or the working woman, mm. the middle-aged woman. It was a film about the young, creative, forceful character or the older um, very unwell one and so I think on the back of that uh, there was there began to be a resurgence also in well what was what was this woman's work actually about certainly more and more philosophy conferences began at Oxford I went to one after another after another <laughs> and there began to be um there was a big AHRC grant to set up the, the Centre for Iris Murdoch Studies at the University of Kingston and various scholars started working on acquiring her correspondence um with other philosophers like Philippa Furton with Rudy uh, Brophy and with Canoe and who influenced this novel so more work grew but I do think it sprung from that, from an initial interest in her as a woman um, and what happened to her. But she did kind of become the poster girl for Alzheimer's for quite a long time. And I think that's not the case now. I think that her, her novels and um, there's a growing interest in her novels as well in terms of adaptations and things like that. But in terms of her philosophy, there's a certain... And also there's so much in her philosophical work to do with... Um, the environment to do with animals to do with um, morality and goodness and question that are far more in vogue as concepts now so what's more really interesting about the passage Hannah read uh, that struck me was her discussion was her use of the roses like cutting off the roses as in the most beautiful the most you know she was interested in art she was interested in nature such a rich writer and thinker that I think the more her work is read it's it's exponential yeah it's, yeah it's building and building we're helping towards that as well i think yeah. um mara let's get one last reading in and this is one that you've selected uh, yeah. and then we'll open up to questions yes um, may i spontaneously pick another one because yes of course that's quite a bit about jake now so, so, so just to introduce um, the, what I think is the most yes. character. We, we've um, overlooked someone very important. <laughs> the so he is a film star himself. So he's a dog known from various movies. And um, Greg decides to kidnap this poor creature because... Um, the person who owns him presently has um, has stolen his manuscript and he's now hoping to be able to um, get the manuscript back or get uh, royalties from the film that this other person is hoping to to produce Sammy. And so um, they have been already on a journey together and uh, we found and I think it, it's it's remarkable how Mars initiates a change in character in Jake. And that's consistent with uh, Murdoch's idea that if we turn to nature, if we turn to animals, if we turn to art, if we turn to anything that is sort of transcends ourselves and reminds us of the fact that things other than ourselves are real um, and attend to them lovingly, that we sort of 
improve. And so they've done a little bit of this already, but Jake is not yet there. And um, so now he is uh, back and, and his life hasn't gone too, too well. And Mars is with him in the room. And I'm going to read you that section. Thank you. So Mars was somewhere in the room. He would lie so silent for long periods that I would think that perhaps he had gone away and start looking for him with my eyes, only to find him lying close to me and looking at me. Occasionally, he would attempt to lie on the bed beside me, but I discouraged this. His warm fur had an aroma of sleep, which made me afraid. Then he would stretch out near me on the floor, and for a time, I would dangle my hand upon his neck. Later on, he would poke about the room in a bored way until he threw himself down in a far corner with a grunting sound. Later on again, I would hear his claws click on the linoleum and he would come and thrust his long nose into my face and give me a long look of anguish which came so near to transcending his nature that I would push his face away and ruffle up the fur of his back to satisfy myself that he was only a dog. So, and I think um, what this shows very nicely is the way in which Jake starts looking lovingly at this other creature and the importance um, the dog has for him. Because in the beginning, he is looking at Mars from a purely instrumental perspective. At some point, he even considers that his ears would make nice silk purses which is ridiculous. And then all, all the time you've got the dog who's an exemplar of virtue. He's loyal, he's loving, he's patient, he's courageous. He sticks with Jake through thick and thin at, at the studio with the, with the fight and everything. And he is miming along and saving Jake. And, um, and here Jake is, and this is shortly before something very important happens in Jake's life. Namely, he, he takes up a, let's say, proper job, right? And, uh, and the dog is there. And so I just wanted to, to, to talk about this because, as I said, that mirrors um, some of the things that we find in Murdoch's philosophy as well. Yeah. And that is, as Lucy just said, then um, gaining more interest in the broader philosophical circles and um, lots of work is being done on how this idea of really looking and appreciating from a non-anthropocentric perspective, yet not taking humans completely out of the equation either, um, might help us um, improving, really. I, I love that reading. It's really transformed my, my sense of the book. Your, your affection for Mr. Mars, as a dog owner, I know you are too, um, has made that, has really enriched that for me. I, we will pick up the conversation, but let me turn to the audience because they've been sitting very patiently waiting for us. And there are a number of questions in the chat and I'm going to try and get through as many as I can. There was one from Shrindi Prakash and I'll read it to you. It's towards the top, it came in at 6.15. I'm not too familiar with Murdoch being still partway through the C2C. Is this plot of tracking down or running into an important character from one's past a recurring theme in Murdoch's work? So tracking down or running into an important character, is it a theme or, yeah. Recurring, it certainly is. So there's often at the start of a Murdoch novel, somebody who comes back from the past to haunt them or to, to rearrange everything. I think Richard Todd compares Murdoch's novels to, um, what's the English word, uh, like a, a, a hot pressure pot where like things are grown in together, thrown in together, there's lots of things change and then 
people come out sometimes better, sometimes not. I don't think it's always that obvious that people actually have improved. They might be slightly more doubtful, but doubtful, less certain, but if they have improved, I'm not always sure. I won't say anything about the CDC, but um, <laughs> read on. Um, so, so in that sense, yes, there is. Yeah. Let me get to Alex Leggett's question, 617. Hi, I'm studying for an MPhil at Cambridge. Good luck, Alex. And my dissertation is on Murdoch. Wonderful. Murdoch, mysticism and the limits of language. I was wondering if anyone could comment on Murdoch's engagement with mysticism and Wittgensteinian theories of language, specifically with reference to the dialogue, the silencer and her wider philosophy in metaphysics. That sounds like one for Hannah. This <laughs> is for you. <laughs> I think the mis so Wittgenstein is not my specialism, but the, the 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 mysticism comes in in metaphysics as a guide to morals very much, and I think it's inspired by by her reading of Plato, by the reading of Plato's uh, Cave, but it's also inspired by hey? Saint John of the Cross. Say again. Yeah. Simone Weil, yeah, yeah. Okay, of course, yeah. yeah. Less, less of a, um, not a, not a kind of religious mysticism, though, like Weil, but a kind of, yeah, that neoplatonic um, uh, concern with the transcendent good, theological, but that is, um, that is transcendent and that we all are kind of orientated towards it. Yeah, it has to happen in ordinary circumstances, in quite run-down circumstances, when you're down and out, like a Jake, I think. Yeah. How religious she is, though, I think is, is a matter of, of debate. So I think she becomes more interested in religion later. Like, I think she has a real interest in, but not a real interest in religion as something of a community of, certain, of a certain tradition, though it's very clear that she is raised in a Christian tradition. Mm -hmm. But I think she becomes more and more interested in it later on. Like in Metaphysics as a Guide to Morals, she says, you know, angels and I think even Christ appears in the, in the later <laughs> novels. As long as you don't think of him as, as a deity, but like he, so, and she, well, she's a great fan of prayer as well, isn't she? Because yeah. she sees prayer as a, a meditative endeavor that's yeah. focusing on something um, other than oneself. So, provided it's not a kind of petition type prayer where you're asking for something for yourself, she sees that kind of. Um, uh, in exercises something valuable mm. and she's really so interested in ritual and yeah. actually that's back in this novel as well right so when they go swimming he she calls it a ritual performed and it's yeah. rather an interesting passage i won't read it tell, but, tell yeah. me about the swimming because you think the swimming is a very important ah. thematic element to this bit so i did a podcast on, on murdoch and swimming it was a fun podcast this summer and so i read some of the passages of swimming in murdoch's novels i think peter conradi says you could read all the novels through swimming and i think that's that's a great idea here the swimming um, so it happens i think it's interesting because it's an extremely embodied experience and she talks about it in rather embodied terms and anyone who has gone into the cold Walter knows that you you sort of reduce to your body, right? The more you're into October, the, the further you are. <laughs> and so it, it sort of happens that this seems to be, for me, this is my thesis, my next paper, uh, an idea of unselfing, like a, because you sort of become more yourself and yet you become sort of more aware of the rest of your surroundings. And that's what happens to Jake. Like he becomes less obsessed with himself and more obsessed with, more concerned for his surroundings. Mm. 
and, and how she writes about it, she uses a lot of religious language, so she talks about a ritual, but she also seems to have a sort of breaking of bread afterwards and drinking of wine. It's brandy and it's pate and mm. it's crackers, but I think there is a sort of similarity there. Yeah. And I think she likes, she really likes the idea of ritual in a, in a sort of abstract sense, and it gets a bit uh, more flesh in the novels and this I think is one of those occasions. She says something about the stories about uh, at Christmas she says all oh, the stories of baby being born in a stable with donkeys and, and asses is a good story she said they're good to have in our lives. Yeah yeah. Mara you were nodding along what, were, what did you want to yeah, say can Mara? I, can I just ask you Hannah because if that so I think that's a very interesting idea that in, in the exercise of swimming is has something to do with unselfing and there is that passage when he's in Paris where Jay comments sort of offhand about these weird people who encourage their dogs to go swimming and who enjoy to see their dogs swimming that much do you think that's an attempt of communion with the other animals in the water or well, I don't know so I, I sort of I'm not that keen on the dog. Oh no, I am now, Mara. You really sold Mr. Mars to me. I, I feel like he's a much overlooked character. Um, let me pick up one of the other questions. There was a, a kind of exchange between Jenny Judge and, and John Spratlin. They were touching on things that we were talking about. And uh, um, Jenny uh, quoted very knowledgeably, Henry James famously said of George Eliot that Murdoch's prose sometimes smells of the lamp. I love Murdoch, but I sometimes feel a bit frustrated by the way the philosophical content feels a bit shoehorned in. And then Chaplin responded saying, um, I quite like the philosophy being incidental. Is, it, is the novel a vehicle for the philosophy or an alternative to it? And we sort of roamed around those questions, but have you made your decisions? Is the philosophical content shoehorned in? Is, it, is the novel a vehicle for the philosophy or an alternative to it? Where, where do you stand on that? complex picture actually because I know when I started studying her philosophical works in relation to film several people said to me oh you have to you have to include the novels because so, so much of her philosophy is in the novels you can't just read the philosophical text and I absolutely didn't want to do that because I thought if I, I want to see the philosophy standing on, on its on its own and not worked out so I think it's sometimes perceived that her novels are almost like supplementary scenarios for her to work through her philosophical worldviews and there's no doubt about it that that, that does happen but at the same time I, I don't think she's being disingenuous when she says that some of her language and examples and characters are taken from what she knows and that they are not necessarily meaning to bash her over the head with philosophical references even though in fact it might read a bit like that sometimes and I, I have some sympathy with that because sometimes I think all right all right, Iris, we know you believe in attention and close attention, you know, does everybody have to do it all the time? So I, I, I get that, and it, it does feature, um, you know, uh, highly in, in the novels. But I don't, I'm, I'm not sure, I don't think that she saw, I mean, she would be very opposed to the idea that she used novels as a way to convey, to write philosophically. She thought that was a big mistake. Mm. Mara? Yeah, uh, and I just think that, clearly she would know that these are two different ways in which the mind operates and yeah. she knows how to do philosophy and she knows how to to write a novel or to write poetry or whatever and and i don't think that she she's um oh, i don't know but it would strike me as strange as if she was you know just replacing the one by the other mm -hmm. hannah i i think i've sort of I started out only reading her philosophy, but I'm more and more keen to include the novels when I think about her work. So I see more and more a connection. I also see her 
sort of reflecting on her philosophy in her novels. I think there's a sort of going back and forth between the two. So the activity of novel writing, which is important in Under the Net, she reflects on that in, uh, in her philosophical writing. And I think some of her philosophical ideas she tries out in some of her novels. I think she's just scared of a one-on-one -on -one reading. And that's why she is making that distinction so sharply. She's making it more sharply than it's there. I think, you know, one feeds of the other, but to make it to that one dimensional, I think that's her real worry. And, and I mean, the novels are, are not just philosophy. They're great reads as well. Mm. And I think her psychology is fantastic. And, you know, there are all sorts of fantastic things happening. They're often described as psychology, actually, aren't they? Kind of moral psychology. Yeah. I love that, Katri. I think that's a really useful one. There's a terrific question from Young Bin Yu. Um, seems that Murdoch's loving attention, and you mentioned attention a moment ago, Lucy, is a philosophical concept that has slowly been gaining traction among academic philosophers since the 1980s. What other Murdochian concepts do you think philosophers should look harder at? Lucy, I wonder maybe you could pass that, explain what loving attention means That's for those of us who don't know. That is a great question. Yeah. So yeah, loving attention is a, a, the, the term that she always says she borrow in summative good. She says, I borrow this from Simone Weil. It's the idea, and the example she gives famously in the summative good is that of um, someone who is sitting in their room at their desk, caught up with their own injured pride and conceit and worrying about something. And they look out of the window and they see a hovering kestrel. And this hovering kestrel takes them out of themselves. And in that moment, they're not thinking about themselves. They're not thinking about their injured pride or their, their vanity. They're thinking there's nothing going on other than their attention on that kestrel. And she, for Murdoch, she would say that the idea of unselfing getting out, outside of our fat, relentless egos, as she calls them, and being able to cultivate that uh, a just and loving gaze upon something other than ourselves, by paying attention to something other than ourselves, is a way of essentially improving our, our moral character, being uh, doing good moral work. Uh, and that also it, that object or what, what attracts our attention can be art, nature, another person. And she goes so far as to say that in terms of love, um, love is no, you know, the, to actually understand love, you need to understand that something other than yourself is real. So for mm. her, it's, it's, which is what Jake, I think, comes to understand in Under the Net. So I think loving attention is, is the fundamental concept that I associate with sovereignty of good and with Murdoch's philosophical thinking. Oh, um, I love, I love that, Lucy, that, that, that's a, such a wonderful way to read that. I, I think what's really important about that is that it's not, it's something to cultivate and it's something to work at rather than a state that is attained. So mm. you don't become, you don't attain a state, you don't live in a state of attention to somebody else and mm. are thereafter a good person and happy forevermore. But that by learning to pay attention to another, by learning to unself, by learning to not just care practically and do things for another, but actually to alter one's vision and see differently, see another differently, that is the key towards becoming a better person mm. and I think that's what we see running throughout it's triggered by Mr Mars for Jake and that passage that you read Mara let's not forget that is that occurs when Jake is absolutely in the depths of despond he is catatonically depressed he can't get off his hideous camp bed and it's that in a way it's the love and attention of the gaze of the dog on him 
helps him to get a bit of confidence. There's that brilliant line where he says something about the smallest creature that can gaze at you as a spider. Or spider, yeah. yeah. The awareness of the gaze of the other on you as well. And yes. so through that, I think through the, the coming to receive the gaze of Mark, Mr. Mars and learn to think about him and love him as well, he begins to realise that actually it can be a good thing to help other people. And he goes and gets a job in the hospital and then he begins to see Anna at a distance and begins to learn that actually she's not what he, she thought he was. She, he thought she was. Um, and that he, he realises that he, you know, he's wrong about things and yeah. that other people have their own lives and perspectives on him and the world. Were, were there any other philosophical concepts, that, philo other concepts in the novels that philosophers should attend to, just to pick up again on that question? Do you think Hannah or, or, and Mara? Well, I think, Devon, I think of, is sort of related to love. I think imagination is a great, she writes very interesting about imagination, but I think she, what she does interesting with love and attention as well is, and that's been picked up recently only, I think is in, re in relation to ecology. And I think she's very interesting there because sometimes the discussion there is a bit about abstention, right? We shouldn't do this, we shouldn't do that. And that just leaves us in different worlds. And I think this notion of love and attention allows for a relationship with nature that's other than one of utility or simply abstention. And I think in that sense, she's a very rich thinker. Yeah. Mara? No, and I just want to, to say, I mean, Hannah, if you don't care so much for the dog, uh, there are the, the cats, the cats. I like cats. Yeah. <laughs> this, this wonder of the world, um, um, ending. I mean, this is what the novel ends on. Look, there are these wondrous things in the world, and in this case, it's a heteroparental super fecundity. So the, mm. the opportunity to receive the offspring of two different fathers, in the case of the cat, right? But I also found that very interesting as an analogy for how to, you know, come up with a with a more wondrous view of the world or appreciation that sometimes mm -hmm. very odd things can go together and I think that's something that we can take away from Murdoch as well and then of course the scene with the chameleon in in Paris <laughs> is to add to this point that Hannah was making about the more than human world of yeah yeah that's so fascinating I'm going to take one last question from the audience and this is Pedro Victori and he, he he says I'm assuming he I remember reading in a prologue to this novel that under the net is the story of how Jake matures as a person and an artist and becomes the author of Under the Net. What parts of the adventures Jake's lives through, the, through this book do have the greatest impact on who becomes as a novelist? And I think the more interesting question, and what traits, if any, do Jake and Murdoch share as authors? Is that a question we could answer? I think there is the one thing, the obsession with truth and with lying and, 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 and the obsession with writing the perfect novel. I think there's something in that. <laughs> that seems to be a theme through Murdoch novels as well, right? So where she has the sort of the big bulky novel versus mm -hmm. the pure novel that will answer all questions and is, is perfection. Yeah. I, mean, I, think she, I think she must have quite good knowledge of quite a lot of the things that Jake gets up to because she writes them very evocatively and the drinking. <laughs> Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I think she, I, I think there's a real in um, she, you know that there's, the, the, obviously her imagination is amazing, but there's a lot of retelling from experience there. I should think in terms of her experience, her characters' experiences. Oh well, Bob Stern very quickly is stuck in a snuck in a question. Not sure anyone has explained the title of the book. Does anyone want to have a go? 
it's to do with the um, what we were talking about about being constrained by language and constrained by theory and grand theory. It's I think Hannah really it's a Wittgensteinian reference, isn't it, about the net of language? language yeah. The idea that if you you could um, some people seek to cover everything in a in a net that explains the world and that it accounts for everything, but in fact none of that is applicable to reality and the particularity of reality and we're all trying to get under that net to see mm. what actually the real world is about and in its particularity what the kittens are about how the kittens <laughs> are, um, and not even to understand it just to see it and appreciate it free of the net that seeks to cover it, everything yeah it does come from an an i can't pronounce that name but it's hugo in the in the dialogue right where he yeah. says like however hard we may try as it were yeah. to crawl under the net yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah she mentions it in there yeah um but if if the silencer is hugo and that's the name for the novel that jake has written then hugo again is giving the title for murdoch's novel yes yeah just to close, if this novel has piqued your interest, what should people read next? Hannah, you go first. What should we read next? Well, I, I really like The Bell. And I think if you want to know more about swimming as a way of reading a novel, then The Bell is your, is your novel. I love that Murdoch invented wild swimming before wild swimming became a thing, it seems Not like. Yeah. But everyone was wild swimming. We were just swimming. It's only now that we're wild swimming. <laughs> so The Bell. And Lucy? Um, so it depends on your mood. If you want, um, if you if you want more more jolly Murdoch, I think the Sea the Sea is extremely hilarious in places, but also quite crazy and mystical mm. and moving and about the quest and people from the past and about women. Um, but I also love the Unicorn. If you fancy something really kind of gothic and a bit unique, I think and Sandcastle is quite um, beautiful. Oh, lots to get on with Mara. Something with more dogs and cats in. Yeah, actually, I understood your final question to um, to ask, so what am I going to read next from her? Oh, and well, I, what are you I, going to read? Yeah, so I'm actually trying to get hold of uh, one of uh, very few books of poetry. I believe there are only two, and there's one, A Year of Birds, and apparently she has written a poem for each calendar month and with some drawings and illustrations to go with it. And yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very curious um, to... To read that so oh, tell us how you get on with that, that. Having read it, yes so. <laughs> I, I want to read it to you now thank you so much wonderful talking to you thank you to our audience too for your questions and for our marvelous companionable uh guests hannah altoff lucy bolton and mara kojakaru do join us again <laughs>